I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm at Peter Hart's gaff and uh, I've joined Peter Hart for today's podcast. What's today's podcast called, Pete? It's called 16th DLI. That stands for what, Gary? Uh, The uh, Doncaster, the Durham Light Infantry. And it's called Dunkirk Genesis. Wow. Now, why are we why are we doing the infantry, Pete? Why 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 well, now? Guess. Why? Yeah. Why? What what could have triggered this sort of? Well, is it because you've got a new book out? You've done the artillery at war. What was that book called? That was called At Close Range. South Knots of Zars. South Knots of Zars. We you've... did the podcast series on that just <laughs> after it came out. Do you remember? We did. Now, uh, sorry, then you did Burning Steel, which what? was the second fife and forefar yeomanry. And we. You know what? We did a podcast series just after that came out. We did. And now there's a new book, Pete, called Foot Sloggers that's just come out. And what are we going to do? We're going to do that. We're going to make a podcast series of it. Um, You and I are both, uh, we've been to Durham, home of the Durhams. It's all uphill. Everything's uphill. It is all uphill. And you remember in the market square, I pointed that big statue out and you said, what's that? I do, actually. I do remember that statue. Very imposing. Yeah, big bronzy thing. And that represents a typical member of the Durham Light Infantry. I think it's from Borneo or Korea, actually. But it dates back to, what, 2014? And uh, even then, there weren't many real Second World War veterans about. I mean, you must have noticed, Gary, that there's less and less, aren't there? There are. Now, we've sort of become accustomed to thinking of those few that remain as old, frail men. A bit but, like yourself. <laughs> yes. But once, of course, they were hale and hearty. One of the joys of spring. Ready to embrace all the challenges of life. Yeah, then they volunteered to were called up, uh, and uh, that that you know to fight for their country, and that's what they did. And 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 the tragedy of it all is that, of course, many were uh, cut down in their prime. What a lot of them used to say, dead long before their time. 
And that sacrifice, we always pointed out that at the time, they thought they might be dead any time, you know, next day, next week, next thing. And uh, so if they got killed, they weren't that bothered, if you like. But we now know, of course, that if they survived, they could have lived for another 60, 70, 80 years. And so they were dead long before their time, weren't they? They were. And this podcast and uh, series of podcasts, I think it's fair to say, Pete, um, it's an attempt to bring back to life the spirit of the living entity that was a battalion at war. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, so who are the Durham Light Infantry? Well, they're uh, they're uh, they're a big regiment, aren't they? They're uh, they're uh, they've been formed uh, year donkeys years ago. You can look them up anywhere. But they've been big in the Great War, hadn't they? Very big in the Great War. They had loads and loads of battalions. Forty-two, I think. Twenty-two saw active service, mostly on the Western Front, but they were in Italy and Salonica. They weren't in. Gallipoli, were they? Uh, and uh, they got the nickname of uh, the Faithful Durhams. Bit like yourself, Faithful Gary. Um, and uh, so, why, why the Sixteenth Battalion? Well, they, they were what? What? They were caused by the the Dunkirk situation. That's hence Dunkirk Genesis. And that uh, that they they, they they were they they were to soak up all the conscripts. A huge increase of conscripts from seventy thousand to three hundred forty-five thousand, uh, because uh, Dunkirk happened. And and uh, it's not a regular battalion. It's not a territorial battalion. Is it special in any way? Well. Not really, I no, suppose. No, it's just thrown together from drafts from all over the country, uh, and it's it's not a, it's not a proud battalion in the sense of it's not got a big name. It's not it's not you know if you look at the official histories of the war or even the, the most popular accounts, they're not mentioned even. Uh, do you think they're real soldiers? Well, well they course, are, but of course they're real soldiers. And, and whilst we're saying that they're an ordinary battalion, as you're describing it, there was nothing ordinary about the experiences that they collectively faced in the war against fascism. That's right, and that that's something that matters both to liberal Gary and naughty old socialist Pete. Uh, they uh, they were fighting against fascism, which uh, I think most of us agree was a good thing. Um, now, uh, so uh, so let so let shall we start at the very beginning? Let's start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. oh, there's a different story. <laughs> different story, Gary. Right. Well, when was the sixteenth DLI? Uh, we'll be calling him just sixteenth, not sixteenth battalion. When were they first created, Gary? Quiz question. Uh, July nineteen forty, when Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Mora Bernard was appointed as the first commanding officer. Now, originating from Hull. Oh God, he was from Yorkshire. He had previously served with the East Yorkshire Regiment. <laughs> And uh, spent some time in India. He was a smart-looking chap, a bit like yourself, Pete. And he was very much a man of his time, who sported a very big handlebar moustache. Just like myself. Yeah, you sweep yours round onto your head, though. <laughs> It's the only hair I've got. Now, uh, so the 16th DLI. Now, then, the, these battalions created from the, the mass of, of uh, conscripts uh, round about this time. They're, they're called Dunkirk battalions. And who else? They're, they're not the only Durham. No, you've got the 14th DLI and the 17th DLI, and they were all Dunkirk battalions. Um, 
The three new DLI battalions formed the 206th Independent Brigade. Now, the 16th DLI, they're first established in the, 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 some big wide open fields uh, in Norton Hall, just outside Edinburgh. You know Edinburgh? And uh, they had a cadre of experienced instructors. Uh, there's a big draft sent up from the Beds and Hearts Regiment, Regimental Depot at Kempston Barracks. Bedford, I've been and looked at that. Uh, now, uh, what would you think most Durham sort of uh, people from uh, Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire? Well, they consider that to be the far south, and uh, uh, anyone from Durham thinks that Yorkshire is far south. Yep, yep. Cockney wankers, I've heard them describe Yorkshire. <laughs> well, I think all Northerners refer to anybody with an accent similar to mine as a Cockney wanker, as you put it so succinctly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, one of the one of this original draft beds and hearts is uh, Corporal Jimmy Jones, uh, and he he comes from uh, Wales. His son of a uh, Jones, yes, <laughs> son of a publican from Evuvale Boyle. There'll be no accents on this because one thing we know is that although we can't do them, a eh? the only reason we ever do them is because people tell us not to. But in this case. Uh, anything to do with an infantry battalion soon turns to shit and murder and mayhem. And we don't want to be doing funny accents uh, and then have to stop or start. Or, uh, we just thought we wouldn't do them. So this is uh, Lance Corporal Jimmy James. And he says this. And he's talking about this field next to Norton Hall. We had to put up in this field marquees and bell tents and get things organised. And in addition to this, the nucleus of the beds and heart, suddenly now Durham Light Infantryman, appeared. The draft of civvies was brought in from Princess Street. Is it Princess or Princess? Princess Street. Yeah, yeah. Men from all over the country, not just the north of England. If they were casualties, it wouldn't all happen in Durham. What are they thinking about there, Gary? Well, Powell's battalions from the from the Great War. That's the Somme, isn't it? That's the the, the the impact. They had to be kitted out. The quartermaster's marquee was already there with all the uniforms, and they were all kitted out as they came in. They were documented at another documentation tent. The NCOs there saying to every man that came in and giving them. A an army number. They were allocated about eight men to a bell tent. Oh, I felt sorry for them because they weren't coming to a depot, they were coming to a field. Mm-hmm. And they were, it was a bloody field. Now, other drafts came directly from the DLI depot at Brantsbeth Castle. We went there as well. Do you remember visiting that? I we do. We couldn't remember get that. in it, could we? But we walked round it and saw where the field was, yeah. And many men were sent straight to Norton Hall straight after their call up. So, with nothing, it's their first thing. Blimey. Now, one of the new arrivals was Gordon Ghent, and uh, he was the son of a carpenter working on the Stanick estate in North Yorkshire. Now, he was slightly older than most of the new drafts, working as a butcher and married with two children. He found his reception a somewhat intimidating introduction to army life. And you're going to tell us what Private Gordon Ghent says. And here's proof in the pudding of something we said earlier. We were met by a bunch of Beds and Hearts regiment. Died in the wool cockneys. <laughs> we hardly knew what they were talking about. We were all Yorkshire and Durham lads. They knocked seven kinds of hell out of us verbally, bawling and shouting. We didn't know what they were talking about, knocking you into line. We weren't soldiers then. Some of them were drunk. It was chaos. The language that these NCO cockney... Sorry, used... <laughs> We thought as village lad, there were lads that we knew a few bad language words, but we didn't know anything till we heard these fellas. They really were disgusting. 
Vulgar isn't the word for it, really. They were obscene. I feel there's a touch of ad admiration in his words. <laughs> but it wasn't just the people that caused Ghent distress. He found the tents to be grossly uncomfortable. And he goes on to say... There were gr big grass fields with rows of trees. They chopped a few trees down to get these tents in. The first night, oh dear me, straight from Civvy Street, there, are, there was a bit of a slope and there was eight men, to, eight men in a tent with their feet in the middle. I had a tree stump in the middle of my back. Nobody slept that night, I can tell you. It was too uncomfortable. I have to say that people like yourself, Gary, uh, I believe if you don't sleep, nobody else around you sleeps. It would be a, a fair comment. Well, in fact, if I do sleep, nobody else around me sleeps either because my snoring. <laughs> now, another draftee was James Drake, who was one of the nine children of a miner from Hemsworth in West Yorkshire. He's, uh, he had plenty of time on his hands. He'd been working as a council driver. He had uh, a hard. He'd hardly lived in the lap of luxury, but he found the conditions of service under canvas were appalling. And this is what Private James Drake said: "It was very inclement weather. They called it Scotch mist, but I called it rain. It rained for a fortnight. It never seemed to stop." We couldn't do any drilling because the field was like a quagmire. There was a big marquee put up for the medical officers. He took the opportunity in the first two weeks of giving us all jabs in the arm. We had about five different lots all pumped into us. One big, tall, thin lad out of our tent. Every time the orderly got hold of his arm, he used to faint, go down onto the floor. But they used to follow him down and still put it in. So it wasn't a very pleasant two weeks. He finished up with his marquee full of invalids coming round after the injections. We were still in our civilian clothing. Believe me, after a fortnight in them conditions, you were damn glad to get the army clobber on, to feel a bit warmer at least than in ordinary civilian clothing. Yeah, did you get injections when you joined the army? Yeah, and we we mentioned it in uh, Laugh or Cry, didn't we? It's a similar thing in the Great War. They were using blunt needles and things like that. Yeah, little millions of little baby whatever, typhoid <laughs> things. Yes. yes. Um, so uh, now, uh, did, did you think issue of uniform and kit? Now, of course, that's now deep, a scientific process. They'd look at you, Gary, and they'd say uh, fifty-eight large. Um, well, exactly. They'd just look at you. And uh, this is as stated by Sidney Shute, who had been previously employed in the rather more sedate surroundings of a cooperative store in Thornley, which I'm assuming is in Yorkshire somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not sure where the boundary is. It's and you're going to tell us what Private Sidney Shute says. They were dishing their uniforms out, just thrown at you. They just looked at you and guessed. 56, large... The tin plates were thrown at you. This, that and the other. They, then they threw a rifle at me. It must have been in the last war, thick with grease. Get that cleaned up. Everything was just flung at you. It probably would be a First World War rifle. Where else would it come from? And it was the same rifle they were using anyway, so... Now, Thomas Atkinson, so Tommy Atkinson, hmm, was from a poor background in Sunderland where he had been working on his brother's market store before he was called up to serve king and country. Yeah. Now, he soon realised that you just had to make the best of it. The defining feature of an army uniform was that it was the same for everyone in the uh, other ranks. Yes, well, that's true, isn't it? And uh, what does Private Thomas Atkinson say, Gary? You got boots, which killed you when you'd been used to wearing shoes. You thought, I'll never get used to these things. 
Funnily enough, after a few route marches, they were all right. You had your woolly vests, a couple of khaki shirts, khaki pullover and a great coat. Your battle dress, your kit bag and everything. You packed your civilian clothes up and sent them home. Yep, that's it. that was exactly what you did in the Great War. I remember very well some early interviews where there was, I was thinking, they parceled it up and sent it home. Um, did you parcel yours no, up? No, no you didn't do that. Those. But we did, have, we did still have the vests and uh, long johns and underwear and stuff like that were still issued. So you still wear it on special occasions now, I understand. I do. And uh, I remember uh, phoning home to my then girlfriend and uh, explaining that I was wearing the long johns because it was cold and found myself rolling up my trouser leg and I looked out the phone box. There was some bloke looking at me as if I was mad. I can't think why you think that. No. Uh, now, uh, so, uh, uh, did, did they all get the Lee Enfield then? No, many of the early arrivals, they were issued with the Canadian P-14 and P-60 rifles. And funny enough, you're going to get your P-45 if you don't watch your step. Uh, now, as there was a temporary shortage of the standard Lee Enfield 303 rifle. Now, to the Army instructors, this was by far the most important part of the kit. And, and what and, does uh, Private James Drake say about that? He says, we got our own rifle. That was going to be our best pal. That was more important than your wife. That's the instructions we got, which could be so, depending on circumstances. <laughs> um, is uh, your rifle more important than your wife? Uh, no, but my uh, submachine gun was. <laughs> now, uh, having been kept, uh, what, what do you think the army would want them to do with their kit? Just jumble it up any old way? Well, as as now, that they uh, had to learn how to lay it out in the approved fashion for the time-honoured ritual of the kit inspection, the ultimate military expression of a place for everything and everything in its place. And woe betide the soldier whose kit was not perfect. Yeah, and this you're going to tell us what Private Thomas Tommy, Thomas Atkinson says. We used to spend a hell of a lot of time in the evening spit and polishing. We had a brass button stick which you put behind the button and cleaned them with a little brush. It was there to protect your uniform. We got Blanco issued for the webbing. You had to do your boots every night. Every time you went on parade, they had to be polished, sparkling. We got a very, very good shine on the boots. Now, that was the same in the 70s when, when I uh, enlisted. The still boots, using Blanco? It's still using Blanco, but not the behind-the-button thing. Um, but uh, the boots you would have to uh, clean every single night. And you did it, you know, with spit and polish, literally spitting and polishing with your Little fingers. Little circles. Little circles with your fingers. And you had your best boots as well, which had to be even more... Uh, uh, they, they get to all be like over. glass, don't they? Yeah, all over. Uh, and if they weren't good enough, as happened to me, uh, soon sergeant lifted the sash window and threw them out the window, and the sash window slowly closed just as somebody threw them back. <laughs> now, uh, soldiers soon realised that not every one of their new comrades was um, strictly honest. Things could go missing if they didn't keep a close eye on their kit. Well, what does Private Thomas Atkinson say about that? Although you were in a bell tent, you still had to pack everything neatly. And almost every morning, the orderly sergeant used to come round and check everything was all there. You had any, If you had any equipment missing, you had to report it. You kept losing equipment. They taught you, it seemed, to be a general thing in the army. If you lose a hairbrush, you take somebody else's. And he'll take somebody else's. It went on like that. 
I must have been too honest. Yeah, I'm not so sure there was. Was there still stealing going on in your town? Not so much, no. Not personal possessions, I think we no, know. No, no, not so much. It's more uh, kit, but... Kit, yeah, sort of, but not, again, not often. Yeah, I think that's changed. Now, uh, basic training. One thing that both you from the 1970s, 80s, and me from uh, from interviewing First World War veterans and the rest of it, has basic change... change, change, change basic change, training changed. Change, change, that's a difficult change, sentence, that, isn't it? Thanks, mate. No, it's not changed much in the last ooh, 100 years or so. And uh, What's it designed to do? Well, it's designed to break the spirit and then rebuild them in the image of a perfect trained soldier. Tough! Capable of coping with great private privation, obeying orders without hesitation, all question, skilled in weapons, skilled in everything. Um, yeah. Is this always the right way of doing things? Because th- this is the thing that some civilians don't understand about the army, and I'm not sure some soldiers understand. Well, the there army. is an argument that perhaps some of the men would have been uh, uh, capable of far more had they been left unbroken. Yeah, in other words, that they had more to offer. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll let, let, let's look at Private Gordon Ghent, who's a bright lad, uh, and as you said, oh, you mentioned earlier, he, he was older. He says this. They put you through the blooming muck. The infantry was noted for what we called bullshit. It might have been all right in peacetime, all the fancy drill and that, but they were training us to fight a war. We'd come from responsible jobs. I've been in charge of a butcher's business for several years. I was 29 years old. They treated you as if you were all ignorant. But they said that was discipline. You had to be knocked into some kind of a working unit. But they carried it too far. Some of the NCOs loved being nasty. They loved it. They should have been Germans, some of them. At first, we were full of enthusiasm. But they knocked that out of you. You couldn't see the necessity for half of the little piddling things that they would pick on you for. They did break your spirit of enthusiasm. That was wrong, I thought. Now, I I think I want to make it clear that that's not a universal reaction. That is a reaction of an individual to the training process. Many others find that they only become happy when they've sort of buckled down. What do you think? Well, Ghent may have been right, but it should be remembered that the army didn't have the time or the inclination to tailor the training to an individual's needs. With millions being called to service, it was of necessity a somewhat crude one-size-fits-all approach. One-size-fits-all wouldn't fit you. Well, on that high note, we'll take a short break. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now, one tedious element was the endless drill sessions, training to move as formed bodies of men, to obey orders and to give experience of working together against a common enemy. Now, in most cases, <laughs> the drill sergeant. Yeah. Well, do you know what? That's deliberate. Remember, we did this with Laugh or Cry, the First World War? Yeah. Now, inevitably, some uncoordinated men just couldn't keep in time. And uh, this is, once more, Private Thomas Atkinson. We used to do drill, drilling up and down. From the very beginning, we were on light infantry pace, lining up, making sure you got in line, how to stand easy, the commands of left turn and right turn. It was pretty amazing how many people didn't know the difference between left and right. They weeded some of them out because they should never have been called up in the first place. Nitwicks, as sick as posts. <laughs> And uh, that's again. That's a you, you've you must remember people. Although you were in a highly intelligent, you were in a uh, uh, boys boys yeah, service junior leaders. That? Yeah, junior but leaders. you still had people that that you know couldn't march in time. That uh, TikToking. Yeah, we had one chap who couldn't carry the rifle because it made him lean, so he leant out of the uh, out of the platoon. It, it was yeah. It's all these things still happened. Now they, they, they've got to improve the the general level of fitness. Again, this is they're not looking at an individual's fitness are they at all they've got to get everyone up man how do you think the army thought they should do it well let's hear what private thomas atkinson says because once more this is universal we went on route marches about an hour and a half the early ones used to kill me round the ankles where the boots went round it didn't take long to get acclimatized the marches got longer you carried a hell of a load everything but your kit bag after every 50 minutes, they used to stop for a 10-minute smoking time break. Everybody used to light up, didn't they? If you didn't smoke, you felt out of it. This is when I started smoking, to my regret. And I've heard that a hundred times. It happened still in the 70s and 80s. You and would that have a smoke minute, break. That 10 minutes every 50 minutes was first world war as well. I mean, definitely was. Um, now, as a result, gradually, standards of fitness improved. Now, did they start? Was this all round Norton Hall? Are we are we talking that, or do they move? No, they move from Norton Hall into billets in the Dunfermline area. Jimmy Jones, that's Corporal Jimmy Jones, who we met earlier, found himself in an old carpet factory under the gentle tutelage of a typical <laughs> NCO of the old-fashioned sort. Oh dear! <laughs> now it did prove an unforgettable experience, much though he might have wanted to forget it. Yeah, and this is what Lance Corporal, Lance Corporal, please. Oh, go honorific Corporal. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Jones, James said, "Why isn't he called Jimmy Jones?" Because he was called Jimmy James. All right. He says this, I was with Sergeant Harry Stern in Dunfermline. He was a beds and hearts man, about 40. He was ex-Indian Army, long service. He had a wonderful soldierly bearing. He loved his booze. He had a perfect face. 
purple face. <laughs> it may have been perfect, but it was purple. Purple face through booze. He was a character. A cockney. Cockney from... But yeah, then mind. He used to say, I'm Harry Stern by name and Stern by bloody nature. Sadly, he didn't have any brains. He couldn't read a map. He couldn't read a compass. He couldn't do anything like that. He got his promotion through his ability to drill men. He was a good drill sergeant. He was drilling these men on the road outside the carpet factory, giving them what for. His word of command was really very, very loud. Left, right, left, right. There were houses nearby and a woman pushed up a bedroom window. You bloody great bully, you wouldn't teach my son like that. I've never heard anything so awful in my life, he said. Lady, I've got a job to do. Send your old man down. She slammed the window. Nobody would laugh. He really was a terror. I send your old man down, I'll beat him to a pulp, I suspect. However, there was another side to the story. Many of the new recruits needed firm discipline and had no idea what they were doing. And that could be dangerous. And this is Private James Drake. We were on guard, lined up, half a dozen of us. We used to have to pick up our rifles in a position so we could pull the bolt back. The officer used to come and inspect that you hadn't got one up the spout. You had to press the bullets down when you closed the bolt. He used to say, right, close your bolt. Sometimes he'd look down the barrel to see if it was clean. Then as he passed you, he'd say, right, press down the bullets, close your bolt, fire the trigger. This lad pulled the trigger, but he'd shoved one up the spout. It went right through the roof. It went through one bloke's shoulder, right up top, hit the roof at the top. The slates came down and landed back in his shoulder. He had to be whipped into hospital. There was a bit of a to-do about that. (laughs) A bit of a to-do. Yes, well, uh, you'd have had rifle inspections that were not that dissimilar. Yeah, no. And, uh, Different rifle. I mean, you'd be at SLR, wouldn't you? Yeah, it was the SLR. And on the ranges, I remember uh, you would have to demonstrate that your rifle was clear. And uh, I, I seem to remember that the sergeant was sitting on your back while you did it, if it wasn't. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Uh, and if you turned around with a Sten gun, what would they do with you? Oh, they would, uh, <laughs> yes, they'd give you a right good kicking because if you dropped uh, a Sten gun, it could quite easily uh, fire. Now, uh, there's one thing that we we mentioned it in passing, but there's something that they all have to get to grips with. What would that be, Gary? Uh, this is, I think you're referring to the light infantry speed of marching, which was 140 paces per minute and a, a double time of 180 paces. Now that compares, I think, normal marchings around about 116 to 120. I think that 120 is what comes to my mind. Um, do you think uh, the think that Durham's uh, once they got used to it? Do you think they enjoyed this uh, the speed of marching? Yeah, they certainly weren't shy of showing a, a fresh pair of heels to other units that they encountered on the road. And uh, once more, I'm going to tell you what Private James Drake says. There was a heavy artillery mob close by, and I think we deliberately used to wait while they set off before we set off to the church parade on a Sunday morning. Then we used to pass them on the road, sticking our chests out as much to say, what are you doing labouring, as we were speeding past them. Yeah, they used to really enjoy it when they had marches with other units with bands. 
Yes. Because they just used to love disrupting everything. I remember well, that. Well, that is the other thing, isn't it? The band would have to play at uh, a similar speed, so everything sounded like a South American national anthem. Now, the battalion embarked on an intensive programme of training. However, some night exercises in Carnegie Park exposed the inexperience of many of the young officers. I've been to Carnegie Park when I visited a mate. I lived down there. Yeah, so what does Private Thomas Atkinson say? Oh, this is this is important because these officers often don't know their arse from their elbows, do they? Uh, technical term. We were doing night manoeuvres in the park at Dunfermline. We had our rifles and blanks. It was one lot against another. Next thing I knew was a young lieutenant coming with a stick. I told him to halt, and he didn't. So I fired my blank, didn't I? He got a hell of a shock. He said, you could have bloody blinded me, you bloody fool. I said, you should have stopped, sir. He's right. He's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly he could have shouted twice, but... <laughs> um, now, they've, they've started to get specialist roles, aren't they? Uh, and that means extra training, I suppose. Uh, and you're going to tell us what uh, Thomas Atkinson said. Now, what was he... Po- he was given a special role, wasn't he? Well, he was posted as one of the stretcher bearers with the headquarters company. And so Private Thomas Atkinson for the medical section headquarters sec- uh, company says this. They taught us all the St John's Manual of First Aid. We were trained to do bandaging and to do splint work, putting splints on broken limbs. Your job was to stop any bleeding, if possible, by packing the wound. Field dressings, that's all you had. Then taking him back to the first aid as quickly as you could so that a doctor could get to him. Yes, that's going on. But they're also beginning to get new equipment because the thing about infantry regiments is they start off as just a soldier and his rifle. Uh, but they, they, what's one of the first things they start to get? Well, I'll tell you, it's Bren carriers. Uh, and uh, and uh, you're going to be, again, James Drake, one of your favourites. Uh, he's promoted by this time to corporal, which is, by the way, the rank that you achieved at the end of your career, wasn't it? Or uh, I wonder if he'll get promoted some more. And he's posted to the carrier platoon and he's ordered to collect the battalion's first Bren carrier. And he says this. I went to collect the first carrier from somewhere around here. I went into this factory and they brought it out into the field and I had two to three hours with it. It was just a matter of getting used to how to drive it. The fellow from the factory showed me. It was simple enough. It was like driving a car except for one difference. When you came to anything like a sharp corner, you changed down, put your foot down, got your revs up so you could get round the corner. Because when you turned the steering wheel right, it braked the right hand side track. So you got round the right hand corner. Same on the opposite side. You'd stall the engine if you didn't have enough revs on. Then I drove it back to the battalion. It was my job to teach everybody in the carrier platoon, 42 men, how to drive it. There were three on each carrier, the driver, the Bren gunner and a rifleman. As I handled it more, of course, the more I could do, I could turn it round on a sixpence. Our job, as far as the rifle companies were concerned, was that if they needed some speedy assistance, then the carriers would move quickly to where they were being troubled. A quick response to any situation. Yeah, the, the platoon, there's three sections to the platoon, and those three sections would be deployed as required. A uh, few more weeks of training, uh, we get to when? December 1940, I think. What happens in December 1940? Is there a big change? Yeah, they move on to Dalkeith. 
Uh, the, is that in Scotland? That is in Scotland. And the battalion's put under the command of Lieutenant Colonel ASP Murray, uh, a former Grenadier Guards officer. Oh, I picture him now. Was he a tall, striking figure of a man? A fire, fine, well, gentleman. Yeah, and a fine example to his men. Now, you would expect that of a Guards officer. He was uh, a forceful individual who was keen on enforcing a good turnout across the board. And he would later introduce distinctive shoulder flashes to mark out his men. Oh, that's uh, tr- uh, trying to improve morale, set them apart from the others, yeah. Now, by this time, Jimmy Jones had been promoted to the dizzy heights of company quartermaster sergeant. Did, did you ever become company quartermaster no. sergeant? <laughs> but this is after only a few months and you were in Yes, your... and this is company quartermaster sergeant Jimmy James of the headquarters company. Captain Ponder issued the regimental shoulder flashes, the Durham Light Infantry, red letters on a green semicircle. We were issued with one set each, and we had to carefully sew these onto our shoulders. When we were walking about, we were very proud. Durham Infantry, like guardsmen. And that, of course, is exactly the idea that the Colonel had, wasn't it? Yeah, it's the inculcation of pride in the unit, and it's all important in preparing a battalion for combat. Flashes, badges, insignia, they all play their their part in creating a team spirit. Now, funnily enough, the team begins to change, though. Uh, the 16th DLI don't stay with the 14th and 17th in 206 Independent Brigade, do they? Uh, they're, in fact, sent to what would be their home for the rest of the war. What is that home? Well, they're sent to replace the 9th Sherwood Foresters in 139 Brigade. Who's that? Well, that was the 16th DLI, the 2nd 5th Sherwood Foresters, and the 2nd 5th Leicestershire Regiment. And it thus became an integral element of the 46th. 6th Division. 46th Division. Which was made up of territorial battalions from the North West Midlands and the West Riding area. Ah, uh, and, and a famous division from the First World War. I think we both know of them, both on the Somme, where they didn't do so well, and then uh, 1918, where they did brilliantly. Uh, so well, let, let's fill them in. Let's literally fill them in. Uh, so when had it been embodied? Well... Well, September 1939. Uh, In late April 1940, its infantry battalions were sent to France, where they had the unglamorous but essential role of working on the lines of communications for the British Expeditionary Well, they wouldn't be there long, would they? Because the Blitzkrieg comes. And and so what what do they do during that? Again, not a lot, is it? Well, they're given a, a reserve role on the Belgian frontier. In the confused fighting that followed... The brigades were separated and retired independently to Dunkirk. Yeah, and uh, they're they're, uh, evacuated back to England, and it's been all in all not the most... a bit chastening, wasn't it? Uh, uh, so where did they go then? Well, the, the clues where they met the, the, uh, the Durham. So they moved to Scotland to be, for rebuilding. Uh, and then they finally sent on to East Anglia in January 1941. Uh, does that involve the uh, their recent uh, additions, the 16th DLI? Uh, yeah, as part of the 46th Division, it's the first big move for the 16th DLI as they travelled by a combination of road and rail to a tented camp and billets around Thetford in Suffolk with the battalion headquarters at Abbey Farm. Isn't that where they based Dad's army around there? I think it is, actually. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so they've joined a division. What does that mean? If you join a division... You're a battalion, but you're part of a division. What what are you going to start doing? Well, they're put through a series of brigade and divisional exercises, and the reason is to accustom them to being part of a larger formation so that they're capable of working together in the field. What, when the shit hits the fan? That's another technical term, yes. 
Now, it started with the basics of movement exercises, practicing deploying from one place to another. Uh, more- that, that is bloody complicated in reality, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, it uncovered many breakdowns in organisation and traffic control. Yeah, and what they, they, like, I know one thing they learned was that they have to label vehicles, they have to put signs on everything, or, no, or the, nobody knows what's what. Uh, but that's not all the training. It's it's a never-ending program of training. This they, 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 they can't say they weren't trained. So what do you have to? What do they do? Well, let's go through a few of them. So there was intensive work carried out in the deployment and use of Bren carriers, mortars, smoke bombs, hand grenades, Bren guns. Thompson machine guns and many other specialist weapons. So, we're not going to go into detail about that because it, it, it would slow us down. Uh, we might come back to it later. Uh, they also make a start on working with tank formations. Wow, that's quite early for that. I bet that's not done in detail, and it isn't now. Uh, there's another thing that will surprise you, Gary. This is going to flabbergast you. What, what could it be? Well, I think you mean the gas training, which was given considerable why, why, priority. Why gas training? We know they didn't use gas in the Second World War. Yeah, but it was only 20 years since they had used gas. <gasps> Do you mean we had to be ready? Uh, the other things, bridging exercises, assault craft work, uh, in case they encounter any rivers. Are there any rivers in Italy? No. Uh, work was also done on carrying out the various types of listening, reconnaissance and fighting patrols. And we do definitely come back to that. That's a lot of hard work. Uh, they also move on to live firing exercise. That's by July they're up to. Uh, uh, why, why do you need to do live firing exercise? Because, you know. Well, you do need to know what it's like as you put it, in the field. Um, but yeah. you also need to be trained because otherwise you get fatalities, yeah, you know, accidental Well, you do, you do. Uh, now, uh, so this is the whole of 41. There's battalion, brigade, divisional field exercises. They're testing everything, everything about a battalion, how it operates in the field as a, as a, as a, as a coherent whole uh, within a larger formation. And on a hostile battlefield uh, environment, uh, what kind of uh, things would they look at? Well, for example, uh, German sea or parachute invasions were practised, with the battalion variously practising holding river lines, defending bridges, crossing rivers and retaking captured airfields. There was a very real thought that the Germans could invade. So who would assess these exercises? Well, staff umpires... Uh, who would assess their success or failure and the level of casualties suffered. Soon, that's going to be all too real. Yeah, that's the point. The casualties are going to be real. They've, they've got to practice. Uh, they have after-action reports. I've looked at these in the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, well, let's pay tribute to the, 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 the... What's that thing called? National Archives. Because uh, all the war diaries are there and everything's there. All the reports uh, uh, that show how, how they, they went, the briefings, uh, they use cloth models to, 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 to actually say what went wrong. It's great. And, but and also what went right... There were recommendations issued to ensure proper reconnaissance using small patrols to ferret out the exact location. And that's, the because, that's because it had been identified. They weren't doing it properly. Uh, what do you think a plan of, ex- of attack? They, they, what, what, uh, this is going to... <laughs> don't remember this when they come to Saint-Julien. What do you think they have to do? Well, they were designed to emphasise surprise, 
mobility, the importance of heavy covering fire, the use where possible of infiltration and an avoidance of too much rigidity in the planning process itself. Yes, and when we come to the Battle of Sedgenin, could you remind that and quote me back? We'll see how well that goes in real life. That's, by the way, not necessarily a criticism. That's just, it's just, it's the brutal nature of war that even when you've trained for something, it can still all turn to shit. Yeah, now it's evident that on the surface at least, the basic lessons of warfare were being learnt. The question was whether the officers and NCOs could keep their heads to carry them out under the stress of real combat. That would be a very different matter. Now, July 41, the 16th DLI uh, sent to, with the rest of 139 Brigade to replace 113 Brigade in static beach defence duties in North Norfolk area. A bit of a holiday. Well, no, I shouldn't have said that. It probably wasn't. Uh, they're, they're taking over a month while, uh, while their predecessors are trained in mobile operations. So what was the DLI responsible for? Seven miles of seafront and the immediate hinterland north of Great Yarmouth. The defences were set up with platoon areas shared with the local home guard and based on pillboxes, which would allow enfilading fire to rake across the heavily mined and wired beaches. Yeah, and they also were practising and arranging rapid response uh, uh, tactics uh, and practising it to counter any possible parachutist incursion behind the line. I bet that, I bet that wouldn't have worked, but they were trying it. They are trying it. Now, as well as these duties, they were employed in adding to the anti-tank defences, establishing and testing a system of interlinked observation posts, erecting ever more barbed wire and digging support positions. So busy bees. Uh, now, uh, were they left in peace and harmony while they did this? Or well, did some baddies try and get them? The Luftwaffe attempted to make them welcome as several bombs were dropped, but there were only a few minor civilian injuries and the Durhams escaped unscathed. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons there weren't many casualties <laughs> is it already evacuated most civilians out of Great Yarmouth because it had already been bombed quite heavily. Uh, uh, so uh, what, what that means, where were the men billeted? Uh, let's guess. Well, they were in very comfortable hotel billets. Yeah, not, not a room each as we'd require, uh, <laughs> but... You know, two comfortable th- nonetheless. Nonetheless, three, four to a room, yeah. Now, they're not there long before most of the battalion moved to new tented camps at Worsted Park and Scottow. No, I've just realised something that's coming up. Yes, <laughs> they're the battalion. As you might guess, the infantry often get this job. They have to set up the camp, don't they? I mean, because when they say they're moving to a camp, a new tented camp, is the tented camp there? No, so they're, they're providing working parties and they're sorely afflicted by continuous downpours. Yeah, but it's July, lovely weather. Yeah, there was mud everywhere and the men were soon wet through. As ever, the British soldier didn't complain, but he did observe a lot in a very traditional fashion. Now, we're now going to attempt to sing. Yes. Can you remember the tune? No. If you want to find the Sergeant Major, I know where he is. I know where he is. I know where he is. If you want to find the Sergeant right, Major, right. I know where he is. OK, I can join you in that. Right, Start, when I point to you. So what does Company Sergeant Quartermaster say? He seems he's very promotable. Yes, we're going to do this together. Are you ready? Yes. If, if you, you want, want to find the Sergeant Major, Major I know where he, he is. is. I know where he is. I know where he is. If you want to find the Sergeant Major, I know where he is. He's hiding behind the shit ass door. I saw him, I saw him hiding behind the shit house door. 
Hmm. That's bloody awful. Wrong tune. Well, we don't know, do we? We did. We looked it up. Do you remember when we were going to learn I, it? I was making the excuse that we didn't know, Pete. You've, oh. you've just taken away the excuse. Now, during this whole period, there was a rapid turnover of officers, of officers and NCOs as the regiment was shaken out to get ready for so, active service. So, so who, who's been removed? Well, the old and more frail, they're ah, at your side. We'd definitely be out. To be replaced by younger, fitter men. So one such newcomer was Henry Harris, who was the son of a farmer from just outside Tunbridge Wells. Mm, now, he'd been to OTC Officers Training Corps at Tunbridge School. Oh, a normal working class lad then. Eh? <laughs> He's a, actually, I remember him. He was a nice guy. Uh, then he'd been a gunner, an ordinary gunner. Credit to him on the 3.7-inch guns, uh, an anti-aircraft uh, Royal Artillery. Uh, then he was selected for a commission, uh, trained as an officer at Falmouth. And then, and then he, he applied for to join one of the Kent regiments, East or West Kent, I presume. So uh, who was he dispatched to? The 16th DLI. Are they Kentish? Oh, well, they are now. <laughs> now, his reception was somewhat disconcerting. And this is 2nd Lieutenant Henry Harris of the 16th DLI. When I joined the battalion, the CO, Colonel Murray, said, Well, Harris, you'd better forget everything you learned at Officer Cadet Training Unit. A complete waste of time. Forget it! Whatever you've got to learn, you'll learn with us. I had a platoon of sergeant, a little chap, naught foot high. He jabbered like nobody's business at me. I couldn't understand him to begin with. It was a sort of foreign language. My Batman, I couldn't understand either. I used to say, Jack, what the hell are you talking about? Well, I got used to it, I suppose. Now, that is a common refrain when the actual Durhams and North Yorkshire people meet Southerners. Yeah. Uh, that they, they they can't understand the accent, can they? Well, it's a mutual incomprehension, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sorry, yes. It's because we... the, the Southerners and the men of Durham and North Yorkshire, that it's going to be an enduring theme of life throughout the life of the battalion and probably the podcasts. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of this first one. I've really enjoyed it. I like the infantry. I, I, I like the tank men and I like the artillery as well, he said hastily. But the infantry, they're really important on the battlefield, aren't they? Yeah, and we're going to be hammering home the point, what do infantry do? They take the ground, boots yes. on the ground. And hold it. And hold it, yeah. yeah. Ah, well, soon the Durhams will be venturing into the land of their deadliest enemies. What? What's that? Kent. Oh, yeah, they're going to Kent. <laughs> Cheers, Pete. If you want to buy and find more, I'm, learn what's going to happen in these podcasts. Buy my book. What's the book called, Gary? Foot Sloggers. I don't know if it's got a... Uh... Further part to it, but foot sloggers. It's available from all good bookshops. By published by Profile, I believe it is, and uh, it's cheap as chips. Well, it's quite expensive. Really. Chips are quite expensive yeah, now, to be but, fair. Especially if you have fish with them. In fact, it's about the same as fish and chips. I said cheers, Pete, about half hour ago. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?